Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. All right, I'm excited to introduce you to our panelists. We have joining with us Eric Torenberg, Jason Crawford, and Yaron Brook, and they're going to discuss some of the ideas we've raised today about the ideas that can destroy or save Silicon Valley, and they each bring their own expertise to this topic. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear the conversation, so why don't you guys take it away? Sure. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm Eric Torenberg, uh, co-founder of Village Global uh, on deck. Village Global is a venture capital firm. I'm a venture capitalist and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, and I'm excited to uh, have this conversation with uh, with you guys. And let's start, let's start with Anne Rand in Silicon Valley. What do we wish that Silicon Valley truly uh, understood about Ayn Rand and objectivism? What do they uh, not get? Uh, what, what do we uh, fail to, to appreciate? So I'd start by the fact that I, I think Ayn Rand, so Silicon Valley has appreciated Ayn Rand to a large extent. So I talked about this earlier, that a lot of the people who founded Silicon Valley were at the very least inspired by Ayn Rand in, in, um, in their business activity and in, in kind of the approach and the energy and the passion that they took. And I think some the confidence that they had in founding the Valley. I mean, I've spoken to many, many Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, maybe of the earlier generation, more so than the younger generation, who were passionate about Rand, and, and really, she helped sh- uh, shape their lives. But I think there are a few things. One is, I think, that the heroes, right, the, the productive capacity, the, the ability to change the world through production, through using your mind, is a heroic activity. And, it, it, and that is moral, that it's a moral activity, that they are moral heroes, not just kind of business heroes, but the moral heroes, because they are, you know, they are making the most of their life, they're pursuing a passion, they're, they're, they love what they do, which is a beautiful thing, to be able to do what you love to do, and they're changing all of our lives, so it, it, it really is that they are moral heroes. And I think the third thing is that you know, that it is, and I think they know this implicitly, that the source of all this innovation and, and, and success is, is not just their passion and their will and so on, but it's, it's their reason. And to value that fully and to fully express that, that it is reason and their own personal values that make them heroic, heroic individuals. I think if, if Silicon Valley understood that and uh, therefore... A subsidiary point to that, understood that what they require, therefore, is the freedom to use their mind and to pursue their passion, then I I think we'd live in a different world. Yeah. What would Rand's commentary be about Silicon Valley today? You know, we've seen in the last decade, last 15 years, Silicon Valley go from the darling that enabled Obama, enabled the Arab Spring, to the devil that has enabled Trump, uh, you know, Facebook uh, controversy, Uber, etc. What what would Rand's uh, commentary be be today, or or call to, to Silicon Valley? Okay. <laughs> I'm speaking for Rand. I mean, I don't know. Start, I'll start with Rand would say stuff that I could never imagine. She was a genius. I'm not. Um, I, I think it would be, first of all, what made Silicon Valley a darling, what made Silicon Valley this massive thing to be admired, it had nothing to do with Arab Spring or Obama. It had to do with this, right? This is my iPhone as usual. And 
all the amazing, you know, now PCs, right? We forget that Silicon Valley started with, with HP and with, with Intel and with, with Apple and the PCs and the whole, and the internet. And that, you know, the problem with the world today is less that Silicon Valley's changed, although I think it has a little bit changed. It's that the world doesn't appreciate the extent to which Silicon Valley has shaped the world, has shaped our lives. Our lives are completely different today than they were 30 years ago. Just think about the things you did on a day-to-day basis, uh, where you went for information, how, how you interacted with computers, how you interacted with uh, what kind of jobs people have. Everything has changed. And all of that is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley should be put on the hill, not because of politics, but because of the impact they've had on individual lives and it's been overwhelmingly positive impact to the extent that people can relate right. to the technology. So then the question is, why is, it, why is the world turned against Silicon Valley? And I think the world's turned against Silicon Valley, again, not because of the politics, not because of Trump, not because of all of that, not because of Uber. Um, we're in a country, right? How many people's lives not being impacted by Uber? I mean, we're all better off for Uber. Yeah. Those of us who travel, at least, all better off for Uber. No, it's because the world has become, you know, less admiring of success. The world has become, I think it's their fault, not Silicon Valley's fault. It, it's become less appreciative of, 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 of productive ability of, of, and people don't see the connection between their rise and standard of living, the quality of life and all the value that the value has produced for them. And, and all they focus on is on these things that are problematic. Right. And they completely evade, completely ignore the massive benefits Silicon Valley right. has made. So it's, the world has become more altruistic, more collectivistic, and more controlling. But the, the other thing I'd add is that I think Silicon Valley itself has become more apologetic and it has less sort of moral justification for for its own heroism, uh, as you spoke earlier. I think part of what's going on with with the tide of public sentiment and the media seeming to turn against kind of tech in general is just that uh, tech won. It, it won the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, the top, uh, you know, so many of the top companies today, uh, top most valuable companies in the world are tech companies. Um, software is beginning to, we're, we're hitting the point where tech companies are not just creating computers and writing software, but they're uh, they're taking over every industry, right? So Uber's not a software company. Nope. It's a transportation company that's beating out other transportation companies with better software. Um, uh, Flexport company I used to work for is is uh, you know a entering the freight and logistics business and beating out other logistics companies with better software and this is what Mark Andreessen predicted it was almost a decade ago when he wrote this uh, thing he's a software is eating the world and that is exactly what has happened and so in general you always see public sentiment turn against a thing once it becomes uh, successful and powerful right right when you're the underdog everybody roots for you there was a great article somebody wrote I forget the name of the author he talked about how media is like a clock and it starts at midnight you're popular, and then as the clock turns around, you know, like, you're on the ascendancy, and then around, uh, you know, six o'clock, you're the devil, and they completely turn against you, and then you fall, and then maybe you, you get to midnight, and they, uh, you right. have a rebirth. But I think that's what's happening. The clock is, is sw- for all of tech, not just one company, is swinging around to six o'clock. We've, tech has taken over the world, and in mostly a good way, uh, but anytime you get that big, the, the narrative is you have 
have power and therefore... Right. But I, I, I can't imagine Steve Jobs apologizing the way Mark Zuck is no, apologizing there's today. A completely different, there's a completely different generation, right? And, and again, I, I think it has to do maybe with Ayn Rand, right? right? If I want to be positive about this. Yeah. There was that founding generation of Silicon Valley that maybe drew inspiration from Rand, from other sources as well, that I think was much more confident, that much more certain about the value they were creating, the benefit they were creating, and were willing to defend themselves. I, you know, I, don't, I think even they should have been even stronger in their defense. But suddenly, the, the, the Zuckerbergs, the people running Google today, the, 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 even Jeff Bezos, who's kind of away from the limelight and hiding some corner or some Caribbean island with, uh, with whoever. But, you know, there's a certain element that he doesn't want to get involved, right? But he's yeah. certainly not out there defending Amazon. And look, if there's any company that should be easy to defend because it's changed our lives in profound ways right now, it should be Amazon. But yet that isn't at the forefront because it, partially because I think, you know, it's not just the ideas. Partially, I think the Valley really was hit hard by what happened to Bill Gates and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. When the government went after Microsoft, I think it changed some of the, some of the, some of the attitude of everybody. Microsoft got crushed. And he got crushed in a sense for standing up. I mean, there was the famous Senate hearing where they go in front of, you know, Microsoft was spending zero on lobbying. It had no presence in D.C. It did nothing. Their motto was, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And they didn't want to be involved in politics. And then Arlen Hatch stands up and says, you guys got to build here and you got to be here and you got to spend money. You got to bribe me and all my friends. And it, Microsoft said, no, we're not interested. And they got crushed for that. I th and I think it's for that. Yeah. I think a lot of people interpreted for that. So when Google was founded, and Google was founded about the same time as this was happening to Microsoft, Google made a conscious decision from very early on. We're going to pay off everybody. Yeah. We're going to buy everybody out. So we're going to give to Democrats. We're going to give to Republicans. We're going to get involved in this political thing. And I think that weakens their position. And it, they don't have that self-esteem. They don't have that confidence. And they're afraid of it. Right. Because they know what happened to Bill Gates and Microsoft. Yeah. So here's where I'm going with this. I, I see um, one of the challenges of today and, and for, for a while now, reconciling egalitarianism and meritocracy. Let's take it all the way back to Christianity uh, and Nietzsche. Christianity, uh, you know, sort of the great inversion of, uh, valoration of the, from valoration of strong to valoration of the weak. Uh, first shall be last, last shall be first, meek shall inherit the earth. Nietzsche's seeing the problems with that. Ubermensch, will to power, success, merit, achievement. And I see Ayn Rand as a spiritual successor uh, to Nietzsche. Um, but, uh, hey, it's, it's 2020. You know, Ayn Rand was a long time ago. Libertarianism is less popular than ever. People don't even know what objectivism means in, in, in today's culture, mainstream culture. So why is that? Why, why is it wholly unpopular today? Why have they sort of lost the, the culture war? Who is the spiritual successor to, 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 to Rand? How, how, do we, uh, how do we get meritocracy back on track, at least in the arena with, with egalitarianism? So there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> we got time. Um, I mean, Rand is, there's a sense in which she continues the path of Nietzsche, but there's a sense in which she takes it in a completely new direction, completely different direction. She replaces this idea of the will and the emotion, if you will, with, with, with reason and, 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 uh, and morality, and morality based on reason, which I don't think Nietzsche could really conceive of. So there's a vast difference between the two. And I'm not convinced that you're right in terms of Rand's popularity being, being at a low point. Um, now, again, there's 
a there's a difference between objectivism and libertarianism. Uh, but I, I'm not convinced of that because I, I don't know that when it was higher, right? So I, I, I think that what you're seeing with objectivism, with Ayn Rand's ideas, with Ayn Rand's view of the world, is it's slowly increasing. Now, we'd all love to see it go like that. But it's a slow, steady increase. And yes, we have the illusion that it's more powerful than it is, let's say, with a Tea Party where everybody's holding up signs of uh, who is John Galt. But they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And they weren't really... So the number of people who actually get it, right, who actually embrace these ideas, are committed to these ideas, is constantly growing, but at a slow pace. And it hasn't hit that, you know, that inflection point that in Silicon Valley you talk a lot about. And maybe, you know, hopefully we'll see that inflection point happening in our lifetimes. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's not... That has not diminished. At the same time, what's happening? So you've got this... The, the political world, the conventional world, the world in which we all live out there is deteriorating, which we would expect, right? Because there are no good ideas. The, the good ideas are still being at the moment. So while objectivism has increased, the rest of the world is, is the, it deteriorating faster than we're growing. And, and we, don't have, we don't have that influence. And, I, you know, other than continuing to do what we do and, and maybe do new things, but trying to expand the reach and trying to get people a greater and greater understanding of these ideas, I don't know how you shortcut that yeah. and how you, uh, how, uh, you know, how you intervene. In terms of the spiritual leaders, you know, there isn't anybody. I mean, yeah. just like... Uh, many thinkers that really who's the spiritual leader of, of uh, you know who's the Newton of today or the or even the Einstein of today uh, you know that it's these kind of geniuses come around very rarely and Ayn Rand was a genius that I don't think we fully appreciate how much of a genius I think future generations will and there just isn't anybody of her caliber and and her, and who to to push this forward yeah. it's up to us there's nobody else to do it I, I wonder if some of her ideas need to be modified or or expanded upon to have a more mainstream uh, audience, um, to have that sort of hockey, uh, hockey stick inflection point uh, that we love at Silicon Valley. So a couple questions for you. One is, in the TLDR, explain the difference between objectivism and libertarianism. Then let's talk about Tara Cowan. Economist had a recent post about state capacity, libertarianism. Some people saw that as a surrender by him or, or trying to modify sort of libertarian vision. And, and then address a couple problems I see with libertarian. Uh, these, one is the non-aggression principle typically loses because someone strikes you for and you're not prepared for it and stake past libertarianism tries to protect against that. The second is that live and let live is not as inspiring as a philosophy as, something, as maybe win or help win or other more inclusive communal uh, philosophies uh, that uh, tend to win out even though they're worse. Um, maybe Jason, you can start with objectivism and libertarianism. Yeah, sure. So uh, I can comment on this and fill in. Yep. Uh, so first off, yeah, objectivism versus libertarianism. I think this is a good one. A lot of people don't know the difference or think they're the same thing. The best characterization of libertarianism in a nutshell that I think I heard came from actually a different objectivist philosopher, Robert Mayhew, I think it was, who said a libertarian is someone who believes there should be little or no government and doesn't see much of a difference between little government and no government. So you've basically got, within libertarianism, you've basically got the, um, you know, you've got one faction that's kind of the, uh, maybe the minarchists who think government is sort of like a necessary evil and we should minimize it. And then you've got this other faction, the anarchists who believe that it's an unnecessary evil and we should get rid of it. Objectivism, now if you don't know much about it, the difference between objectivism and libertarianism, I'm about to blow your mind. Objectivism believes that a government is good. 
So in general, objectivism doesn't believe in necessary evils, right? If a thing is necessary, it's actually good. If it's evil, it's unnecessary. Um, so government is a necessary good uh, in objectivism. It's just the, a good government is one that's very strictly limited to certain functions. Rand would say to protecting individual rights. Um, and so, uh, you know, so that's the difference, right? Objectivism actually sees a good role for government, just like an extremely delimited goal, a much smaller scope um, of government than, than what we have today. So Tyler Cowen, for those who don't know, is an economist at uh, George Mason, part of this thing called the Mercatus Center. And he wrote a blog post about a week ago or so called State Capacity Libertarianism, which is his term for what he thinks libertarianism movement should become or where it should go. There were, you know, maybe some good points in there uh, uh, reminding libertarians of some of the good things that government can do, some of the benefits it brings. My critique of it would be that the term state capacity is vague and uh, encompasses, I think it, uh, it, it packages together or maybe equivocates between two different things. One is how effective is the government? Are they, do they actually get stuff done when they want to efficiently and effectively? And then the other is the scope of government. So what things does government take on? Do they do the military? Do they build the roads? Do they run the schools? Do they fund science, etc.? Right, um, and so I think you know there's there's not much benefit to anybody if the government takes on a project and they botch it and they spend a bunch of money and nothing, you know, and nothing comes of it. Right. So like I, I don't know anybody who argues the government should sh ought to be ineffective, <laughs> but I think what we should talk about and have a theory about is what is the proper scope of government. And so what Tyler put out as quote unquote state capacity libertarianism, what I did not see in there was any kind of a theory or guidance as to what is the proper scope of government. Um, and so that just leaves it pretty much open. You know, without a theory, you've got to just muddle through kind of case by case and, and debate everything. I think what we really need is a good theory of what is the proper scope. Uh, so I'm going to be a little less generous about libertarianism. <laughs> um, I think libertarianism means nothing, really, because it's a mishmash of a lot of different things, and, and it's, it's, you've got so many different types, and, and they don't have a principle in which to rest. And you mentioned one attempted a principle, which is called the non-aggression principle, which Tyler, of course, rejects, which still considers himself a libertarian. So then you don't have any principles on which libertarianism rests. It's just a mishmash of stuff that generally means leaving people alone, what did you say, live and let live, but not too much and not always and only sometimes and, and sometimes too much. You know, if, if to some libertarians, if you want to have sex with children, that's okay too because they, the child didn't say no or whatever. It's nuts in that sense and, and, and that's why I never talk about being a libertarian because there's this big tent. I don't know what it means. I don't know. I don't belong in that tent. Some of the people in that tent are real weirdos and I don't want to be there, right? I'm not part of that tent. Objectivism is a philosophy. What Jason just articulated is all right, but it's just a portion of the philosophy. It's about the political philosophy. We have views on so many more things and objective views, rational views about so many things that are much more important than politics in a sense, that in a sense lay the foundation for politics. So you mentioned the non-aggression principle. We don't believe in the non-aggression principle. There's no principle there. So that's a libertarian conception. We actually believe in individual rights and we believe that individual rights are a moral concept founded on a particular view of morality. And if you don't have that particular view of morality, then all this non-aggression stuff means nothing to you. Indeed, 99% of humanity thinks aggression is fine if it's for good cause, right? So our conception of government is principled. 
it's there to protect individual rights, period. And if, to protect individual rights, for example, you need a military. Yes. And you need to put a strong military because they're bad actors out there. And if they attack you, you've got to be able to go over there and crush them. Right? Now, you won't hi- see a libertarian talk about crushing, right? but you will objectivist. Um, or you need a police force. You need a police force that actually protects us from people who commit you know, crimes that yeah. violate individual rights. And you need a judiciary and you need an objective system of law where you actually figured out what property rights are and who can use what where and, and how to enforce these things and, and it's complexity. So you need a legislature to figure this out because it doesn't just come about. And, and libertarians reject all that. So, and, and this goes to your, again, you said, yeah, live and let live is not inspiring. I agree. Live and let live is not an objectivist motto. We're about live. Really live. Yeah. And how do you live? Well, one, li- one way to live is by engaging in win-win transactions with other people and, ma- you know, in getting better by trading with other people and they get better, which I think is much more inspiring. And again, Ayn Rand wrote novels. And I can't think of anything more inspiring yeah. than, than particular novels. And of course, that's how all of us were introduced to Ayn Rand. So I think part of what hurts us is that confusion with libertarianism and, 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 and not having clarity on what it is Ayn Rand actually stood for and actually represented. Yeah. So two, two questions. One is, what's the country that you feel best represents or government best represents objectivist philosophy? Two is, this might be the philosophical version of if you're, um, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? If objectivism is such a good philosophy and so universal, why, does it, why is it not more mainstream? Uh, how, does that, how does it get there? So I, so I was asked this question. Uh, I was doing a debate with a socialist. And, um, I'm not a socialist. In, 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 in England. And, and uh, they asked us both this question. So what's the, cl- the country that closest represent your particular view? And my socialist uh, opponent uh, thinks so. He says, look, there's no country that's exactly what I believe. But, you know, if I had, if you forced me to say the closest is... Venezuela. Cuba. <laughs> and I, I just, I started laughing. And it was hard to contain myself because... The con- you mean the country where people are willing to swim with sharks in order to escape? That's your model? Uh, so, but then I had to give a country, which is not easy either. And I had to say the same thing. No country represents. It. What's the closest? I don't know. There's Singapore. nothing really. Uh, there are freer countries on economic spectrum. There are freer countries from, from other, in terms of rights. Certainly, uh, you know, uh, places like New Zealand and Switzerland and the United States are relatively free relative to their options. But none of them come close and not a single one of them. Other than the United States at its founding, and even there, with massive contradiction with slavery, particularly, right? None of them were founded on this principle: the idea of individual rights as the purpose of government, as as what the government should do. I can't remember the second part of the question, but I'll let you. What was the second part of the question? Oh, why are we winning? <laughs> if, if you have any, you know, let us know. No, because it's it's. This is again how we differentiate ourselves from libertarians. Right? Because I think it's legitimate to ask that in a sense of libertarians. If, if the issue is really just economics and politics. <laughs> Look, economics were done. We won that debate, right? Yeah. Uh, Mises and even Milton Friedman we won that debate. All the economic arguments from Marx and Keynes are just wrong. Yep. They, they, they make no sense. We won it. So in that sense, yeah, why are we winning? It's, it's simple. Because, because of what we talked about earlier in the day. Because what we're asking people is to replace their moral views, their, 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 their moral code. Now, I think we will win. I have no doubt we will win. But it's going to take a long time because the fact is that the Christianity had 2,000 years to build up 
a huge, you know, resistance yeah. to anything else. And that mall code that says the meek shall inherit the oath, we should be focused on the meek, we should be focused on those who are needy, that's everything. And, and this altruism as a, as a philosophical moral idea, that dominates every aspect of our culture. And it's so ingrained and it's so institutionalized that it's just going to take a long time. And it requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of effort. And one of the great tragedies, to bring it back to Silicon Valley, is that businessmen, particularly the leading technology businessmen, don't completely realize how good they are, don't link up with Ayn Rand, and then don't use Ayn Rand to defend their companies and to defend the world and to encourage people to read Ayn Rand. Imagine if a Jeff Bezos stood up and said, you know, this is the, you want to understand the world, this is the book, you know, think of, think of what would yeah. happen, or if Steve Jobs has said it, he, he, Wozniak said he was heavily inspired by Atlas Shrugged, imagine if Steve Jobs had actually said that, or imagine if he'd used that in defending his company, then I think the world would change. We need some of those great, you know, business leaders to actually become engaged in this battle that I think all of us are fighting to make the world a better place based on Iron Man's ideas. Um, they have huge influence. They don't know how much influence they have. Yeah. I want to talk about private property rights and, and individualism a little bit. So on the private property front, I'm, you know, some people will often say that um, you know, government should get out or you know, economy should be based not on coercion except for private property, which of course involves a little bit of coercion. And I'm curious if we, if we would be open to seeing, if objectivists would be open to seeing private property like a technology, something that can be improved. A, a couple examples. If my house in San Francisco increases in value, I haven't done anything to the property, I'm the one who captures all that value, uh, it, 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 uh, uh, it's gaining value because of the community. Should the community see some of that value? Or I'm on Facebook or I'm on Twitter or I contribute to one of these 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 companies. I, I contribute my data. I don't receive anything from my data. Should we better reflect uh, private property to take into account increasing returns and um, uh, value creation that was outside of the individual? I mean, so to take the Twitter, Facebook example, sure, you give them your data. What do you get back and back? What you get in return is the use of the service. If you want a different deal, you can insist on a different deal, but you, you know, to, to insist that I don't like the deal that somebody, that other people are offering and therefore what? You want the companies to somehow be forced to provide you a different deal that's written according to your liking and your choosing, right? That doesn't that's that doesn't seem like that, that's not that's not based on anybody's rights. You know, that's just saying I don't like the things that are offered out there. So somebody please force other people to offer me a different thing. But, but government is, is enforcing private property, and could they enforce uh, a, a sort of hybrid version? That better takes into account value value creation well, value capture. I'm not seeing a coherent. No. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, do you have a better answer? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> private property, the principle of private property doesn't change. That's what they're enforcing. We could structure contracts differently than yeah. the structure today. But that would require a different business model. So if you have a business model where I can, yeah. where I can sell my data and I get something in exchange, great. I mean, I, I think that would actually, I think that is what the future holds probably, yeah. where we actually do. But that requires a change in the contracts that we engage in. The government's job is not to tell us what the contract, what the essence of the contract should, or what the nature of the contract should be, as long as it's a legitimate contract, and I think they have a role in defining what legitimate contracts are. But then the marketplace can change the nature of that contract. In terms of the house, the answer would be no. I mean, imagine, I mean, just take that fully, right? 
Think of the positive externalities that Silicon Valley has created in the world. I mean, you guys are really poor. I mean, Steve Jobs only had $4 billion when he died. Think of the positive externalities he had on the globe. He should, be, he should have been worth $100 trillion. I don't know what the number would be. If you added up the positive externalities, that's, that would be bizarre. That somehow I don't get a benefit from, from the upside. But when I create positive externalities, I, you know, I don't get those. right? So no, we engage in voluntary transactions, win-win transactions. And they're not going to be equal. My gain is not the same. For example, when I buy an iPhone, Apple makes, let's say, 400 bucks on the $1,000 I paid them. I make like $100,000 of value, more than that. I mean, the iPhone is worth to me, right. I can't imagine. So it's not equal, so what? And I, I have to say this because, you know, San Francisco housing prices is on everybody's mind. Give me a break. The only reason your house value is going through the roof is because you have bribed the politicians. To prevent other people from building housing that would compete with yours, which would therefore guarantee that housing prices would go up. So the housing prices problem, to the extent you right, is a problem of politics. It's not a problem of oh unexpected gains or something. No, there could be. You could have a windfall off of a house, but the fact that it's systemic is a political problem and a political challenge that needs to be addressed, not another mechanism to redistribute wealth, which is what I think an, an, uh, an attempt like that is not a property right attempt. It's yeah. just an attempt to take some of your wealth and redistribute it to somebody else. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a mistake. So in, anytime you have a transaction between two people, if both people win, right, if both sides of the transaction are happy with it and get value out of it, then that was a good transaction, right? There's a mistaken idea that we can somehow account for, you know, or measure like all of the value, right? And who got more surplus out of this, right? And which side maybe benefited more? Like, you, you can't do that. Right. Um, and we don't need to, because as long as, as long as both people win, it's moral, right? Totally. I want to talk about uh, individualism uh, and, and communities, and then, and then let's get to progress. So a couple points on individualism. One, Glenn Weil has this idea that um, it's sort of paradoxical, but if you think of yourself as a mimetic code of the different relationships you have, the more communities you, you are part of, the, uh, the more unique your mimetic code is, and the more of an individual uh, you are. Uh, let's relate this to the second point, which is Yuval Levin says, um, our, our libertarian, and again, not objectivist, focus on individualism has um, some somehow has paradoxically also enabled the state because if you can't solve the problems at an individual level, you're forced to solve them at a state level and it doesn't take into account uh, sort of the, 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 the gap in between the civil society, community, families. Um, and and um, I'm curious how you'd uh, respond or react to either of those points or, or just more sophisticated understanding of, of individualism. So first, on the first point, I'll just say there is something to be said for uh, I'll interpret it as positively as possible. There's something to be said for exposure Exposing yourself to uh, lots of different ideas from many different sources and thinking carefully and critically about each one and forming your own you know, personal worldview that is based on your firsthand thinking, uh, based on you know, seriously considering every idea, based on not just adopting some set of ideas as a static kind of, uh, this is what I believe for the rest of my life, and now I will evaluate every other thing I hear 
here based on whether it agrees with or disagrees with what I already believe, right? That's how most people live their lives, right? They, at some point early in life, they've adopted some philosophy, implicit or explicit, and then a lot of their life just becomes, whenever they're dealing with philosophical or ideological ideas, they're just fighting, right? It's like a, the whole the entire uh, world of philosophical and ideological debate for them is just like a battle, um, and uh, some, someone is given the metaphors, ideas as soldiers, like you're just putting ideas out there as, as soldiers to fight a battle for you. Um, and for any objectivist in the audience, my number one uh, advice to objectivists in general, I would say, would be read more broadly. Just like read a lot of different stuff, get out there in the world, see what other people have to say, think about it critically. It will make your own worldview better. Uh, it'll make you better. I mean, I think the, the, the point of view you articulated doesn't mean anything. And it's, it's not coherent, and it's, um, it's straw man's individualism. So individualism doesn't mean living on a desert island all by yourself. Individualism means, I mean morally, it means living your life to the fullest, figuring out what is going to make my life the best life that it can be. And for most people, you know, that involves networking with lots of other people. And, but it doesn't for everybody. People, different people are going to make different choices about how many networks, how many communities they want to network. There's no one answer that is true of every person. And it's not, it's not an issue of degree in that sense. It's not an issue of, oh, if you network with a lot of people, you become more of an individual. No, the individualism is the principle that guides you. It's not then you're kind of on a spectrum, right? You, you could abandon the principle and then be less of an individualist, but it's not about how good your life is. Individualists focused on making their life better, and then they have to figure out what that entails. And other people are in massive value to an individualist. And what kind of relationship does an individualist want with other people? A win-win trader relationship, where they gain value, not at somebody's expense, but at somebody's profit. So, because that creates fantastic relationship. That creates fantastic relationship um, in the bedroom, and it creates fantastic relationships in business, and it creates financial fantastic relationships in among friends. Win-win relationships, which are enhancing your life, and then you can decide how many friends, how many communities. Depends on your profession. Depends on your career. Depends on your interests. Uh, so, I, I I I think what they're trying to do in stating that I, I can't remember who you said said it uh, it was a uh, but what they're trying to do is eliminate individualism they want to eliminate that self-motivation to be the best that you can be for your life because you have one shot at this and living the best life that you can by blurring the distinction between the individual and the group but there is a group is just a collection of individuals and your job as an individual is to figure out how to live well yeah and so when people talk about synergy, one plus one equals three, we're more than the sum of our parts. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. That's why teamwork makes sense okay. for a selfish person, for somebody like me who doesn't, supposedly doesn't care about other people. Teamwork is great because, yeah, if, if we add up kind of the, the ability to stimulate thought in one another and to spur ourselves and to motivate and to inspire, then we get much, much better results. So it's great, but I don't do it for the sake of humanity or the sake of the collective, but for, for my sake. And it's, it's why, as I said before, I, I benefit massively from a company like Apple or from people in Silicon Valley. Uh, 
even though, um, you know, I trade with them because that's ultimately the way in which you interact with one another. So yes, uh, working with other people, civilization, which means other people, is a massive, I mean, think about, I think about it, I, I love art, right? I love, I love painting, I love sculpture. How, how much wonder and benefit I get in my life for the fact that Michelangelo existed? I haven't paid him anything, right? And there he is, and, and he's made my life incredibly better. And yes, so we benefit enormously from the ability of other people to be free and to produce and to create. Even if we never meet them, even if we never actually literally trade with them, we can benefit from other people. Individualism is about the, morally is about the focus politically it's about leaving you free to do that, to, yeah. to go out and interact on your terms with the rest of the world. Uh, last question on this topic. Uh, Robert Wright has this book called Non-Zero, which the, the thesis of the book is that the story of human history is a story of increasing social complexity uh, and thus increasing interconnectedness uh, economically, socially. Um, uh, in every, every aspect, you know, our, our lives are way more interconnected with someone in China than, than they used to be, perhaps. And I'm curious if you accept that increasing, uh, if you can have a story of increasing interconnectedness over time and if that has any implications for uh, the relationship between individuals and a community uh, going forward. I'd have to think about it, right? But generally, that is true, that we become much more interconnected. And I think the, the reason for that is the individual freedom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so governments don't tell us who we can and cannot trade with, who we can and cannot speak with, who we can and cannot interact, but we're free to do so. And all the innovation, all the progress. So think about the world 2,000 years ago. You couldn't be interconnected. You didn't even know that America existed or Africa. You know, you just, you just knew your little community and that was it. It's the progress we've made since then. And so the qu real question is, how did we get to the point where interconnectedness on that scale was possible? And we got to that point through the achievements of individual reason and an emphasis on individualism. That is the idea of the pursuit of happiness, individual pursuit of happiness, so political freedom. So political freedom connected with reason and, and the two are inter interrelated. That leads to a world in which we are much more interconnected. So take China. We were not interconnected with China 50 years ago because China was oppressive and strained in walls and, 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 and couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't interact with them in any level. We only became interconnected with them when they became freer. Right? And we could argue how free they became, but when they became freer. So freedom is necessary for that interconnectedness. But yeah, it goes back to trade, right? The more people I can trade with, the better my life. The more I can outsource, in a sense, the things that I don't want to do, the better my life. So it's partially politically, this whole idea of, oh, we're outsourcing. I mean, it's great that we're outsourcing. Yeah. I want to outsource as much of the stuff I don't like to do out of my household. The same, the country is no different than that in, in that sense. So the more we can do that, the more we can create relationships with people, the better off we are. But the starting point morally and politically is my autonomy and my... You know, it's my, ba the, the, the interconnection are based on my values. You don't impose yes. interconnection on me. Jason, talk about the relationship between the progress movement and objectivism and where other proponents of the progress movement, i.e. Tyler Cowen or Patrick Olson or some of the others, overlap and differ with, with, uh, with, sort of the relation with you and, and the perspective of objectivism and, and progress. And then I'm curious, if you don't, we'll skip that question, if there's any relationship you see with um, Rand and Gerard. 
Sure. So uh, let me explain for people who don't know it what the progress movement is, especially since it's pretty new. Um, there is this notion. It's it really it's about six months old now. I would say that people have been talking about this thing. It was originally called progress studies. Uh, some people may be using terms like progress movement, progress community. It is a, a set of people and a worldview very focused on on human progress. Uh, that means technological progress, economic progress, also progress in science and knowledge, and uh, although it's harder to see progress in society and government. If you, uh, if you don't believe in that, just think for a moment that 300 years ago, uh, pretty much everybody in the world lived under a monarchy of some sort, right? And today we have a lot of the world that lives in some form of democratic republic, as you know, messed up as it is sometimes. That's, that is a form of progress. So uh, there's been progress in all of these different sphere, spheres, and uh, this progress is actually highly historically anomalous, right? So for thousands or tens of thousands of years, there wasn't a lot of progress. Uh, there was, you know, some, but like relatively, it's relatively flat on any kind of a metric you measure, uh, whether it's world GDP or, you know, all kinds of different things. You've got this hockey stick chart. And uh, so it's just the last few hundred years that almost all of the standard of living that we enjoy, the knowledge that we have, the peace and freedom that we enjoy, all of that basically came in the last, you know, something like 1% of, of human history, if you want to stretch it back to, uh, you know, the beginning of uh, behaviorally modern humans, you know, living in tribes 50,000 years ago or so. And so I think this is a fact that anybody who cares about human life, um, and it, to go back to, you know, what you were saying before, live and let live is not an inspiring motto. I agree with that. Uh, but looking at the amount of progress that humanity has made in just the last couple of hundred years is tremendously inspiring. And thinking about that as a, seeing that as a human achievement and as something that, uh, that we as, uh, you know, as the human race saw was possible, began to believe was possible just a few hundred years ago, and decided to go after, and then we did it against all odds, I think is, is just something to stand back and be in awe of, in reverence of. And so uh, I think the progress movement is made up of people who see this, who appreciate it at, at some level, and who also see the, how much good it's done for the world. Capitalism has done more you know, for the poor than charity uh, ever has. And uh, who who also see that because this is historically anomalous, it's not automatic or inevitable, right? It's something that we need to keep going. We need to push it forward. Every generation needs to do its part to push the world forward uh, another level. And uh, that's really what the progress movement is about. It's about looking at this, understanding it better, and saying, how do we keep it going? How do we protect it against possibly stagnating or regressing? And, um, you know, how, how do we appreciate what we've got, how far we've come, and how do we how do we keep it going and even accelerate it? So that's what that's what the progress movement is. I think there's a uh, so I see the progress movement as adjacent to or uh, a number of different movements and communities out there. It's certainly uh, adjacent to the objectivist community. I think there's a lot of core ideas and in, in sympathy uh, there. I think, in fact, I think human progress and the the amazing uh, historical anomaly of the industrial revolution was a lot of what motivated Rand and and what she looked at in her philosophy. Um, it's also adjacent to a number of other folks out there, the effective altruist movement. Um, you know, some of the folks like Tyler Cowen and whatever he defines as libertarianism, sort of the free market economists, generally sort of fiscal conservative, whatever. You, that's a whole, yep. you know, 
really big tent. Um, you know, and probably some other folks. Um, it's what I'm personally focused on right now. Uh, for folks who don't know, I read a blog called The Roots of Progress, where I look at the history of technology uh, and industry. And um, so, yeah, I think it's a really hopeful development. I see it as bringing together a lot of people who don't necessarily agree on uh, on politics or even on ethics, but who actually do value uh, something in there that's really good and really important about um, that story of human progress and our agency, our capacity to bring that about. Totally. So, so I'll, yeah, I, I share that, that positive view, although it is a sign of our times that we need a progress movement, right? It used to be that we were all part of a progress movement. We might have disagreed how to get there and how to, everybody was pro-progress, and I think this is a backlash against the uh, a, a strong movement in our culture that progress is bad. You see that uh, in, in, among some politicians, that economic growth is bad, that it hurts the planet, hurts people, it alienates the go, going back to the some of the so Marxist critique. But it, so I think there's definitely a, a, this is a this is a response to that, and I think you know I think the movement could learn a lot from from Rand because Rand I think focuses on on exactly those causes that led to the progress, what actually sustained it, what is necessary to bring it back. Um, and if you think about it, the, the original progress movement was the Enlightenment. And it, it, you know, in many respects, I think what Rand does is complete the revolution that was the Enlightenment and, and, and bring it, you know, give it kind of a, a, a give it the proper moral foundation and the proper epistemological foundation that it needed. But it, it, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of parallels and, uh, and I think that a lot of the people within it are doing a great job as confused as they might sometimes be. Yeah. Two more questions and then we're going to wrap up. The, uh, so one was some people who don't even buy maybe objectivism will still credit Ayn Rand as a, as a brilliant social critic uh, and social theorist. And I'm, I'm curious um, if you see any uh, comparisons to, to Rene Girard uh, and his ideas around why people try to scapegoat and uh, try to tear down these these heroes, these titans of, of industry. And so, do you know Jay Girard? I, I don't. No, That's I've okay. heard of uh, the Silicon Valley people like talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, Girard forget Girard for a second. Why, did, why are people tearing down heroes? What, what, what did Rand really and, capture? What was, what was his answer? Why why do why oh, do they tear down? Uh, because um, we hate people who have what we want. Yeah, but it, it just can't be that simple, right? So nobody's tearing down LeBron James. And nobody's tearing down Brad Pitt, right? Even though they have all we want, or had what we want. Anyway, um, <laughs> some of you might get the inside joke. But, um, I don't think it can be quite that. There's something, for example, we don't resent the wealth of the sports guy or the, or the, or the movie theater, but we definitely resent it among businessmen. So again, this is where the theme of the day, in a sense, it's about morality. It's about a view of a moral code. So yes, I think a lot of people come up with social criticism that's superficial, in a sense. It's envy, and it is envy. It's resentment. It is resentment. But why? Why do we envy? Why do we resent? Why do we resent these people and not those people? And it has to do with our moral code. The thing about the titans of industry, if you will, and the modern titans of industry, you're no different. By the way, it's not new, right? right. We resented them when we lived in Michigan. We resented them when they lived in, in uh, Ohio. We resented people who've made a success changing the world when they made a lot of money doing it. And the reason we resent them, although the culture is worse today, but the reason we resent them is because we resent the idea of self-interest. We resent the idea of being
being selfish. We resent the idea, therefore, of changing the world and benefiting from it. I always give the example, you know, my, my counter example of, of Bill Gates. Bill Gates, when he was a villain, he ran Microsoft, changed the world, made the lives of billions of people better, but he did to make money doing it. So then he was uh, morally not so great. But Bill Gates, the philanthropist, by the way, left Microsoft. He doesn't work there anymore. God forbid you actually build, create, make, change the world through trade and win-win relationship. Now he just gives the money away. Now he's a good guy, right? So what we resent is that self-interested motivation, that self-interested result which money represents. It's not about the money. It's about what it represents, which it represents a, a life of trade, a life of focus on your own happiness and your own success. That's what is, is the cause of the resentment, and it manifests itself in, in, these, in these kind of phenomena, but that's not the cause. Last question we're going to close with is something that maybe people don't often uh, identify Rand with, but you mentioned the bedroom earlier. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you can say a thought on, not the bedroom, Rand and romance, or uh, that is, uh, what, what does Rand have to say about relationships that maybe people don't get or, or, or appreciate in, in her in So, her so first off, if people don't associate Rand with sex, they have not read her novels? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, or met her. So in her personal life, yeah. Yeah. What is there to say about it? Uh, I, mean, I mean, she said she said all this stuff was good. Yeah, I mean, that's the core thing to say about sex is it's good, you know, and, and, and it's wonderful. And, and the idea that there's some kind of sin related to it is, is, is unbecutting of human life and human success and, and human ability. And what she said about romance is, I mean, she said a lot about romance. And she said about a lot about the relationship between men and women. But, you know, a few of the things she said is you have to start with self-knowledge and, and respect for self and self-esteem yeah. in order to be able to esteem somebody else. Else, and that both sex and relationships and marriage and, and, and any kind of intimate relationship should be based on that valuing. So she, she, while she said sex was good, it wasn't about promiscuous sex and sex with anybody. It was about finding people that are worthy of sex with you, right? Or worthy of having that kind of intimate relationship with you. And then embracing that and, and celebrating that. So it's about knowing self and then finding people who are equal to you in terms of their values, in terms of what they can contribute to you, and that it's, and that love, and this is important, that love is selfish, that love is not about, oh, selfless love, I mean, she gave the example, I know we have to end, but she gave the example, of, imagine, imagine a, a groom going up to his bride the night before the wedding and saying, this is completely selfless, I get nothing from you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, this is a massive sacrifice, but it's noble and good as a consequence. I mean, he'd get slapped in the face and she would walk away as it should. Love is about what you make me feel. What, you, what the values you provide me, you make my life so much better. My life is a million times better because you exist, because we have this relationship, and hopefully it's reciprocal, right, that I make my wife's life so much better. So it's about values and about, again, trade, win-win, about making each other better, and, and emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect of our lives. Amazing. One, one thing I would like people to understand better about objectivism is the difference between selfishness or self-interest and just simply being self-centered, right? Objectivism never advocates being self-centered and sort of ignoring other people or forgetting about them. And this is a great example, right? That romantic love is, it's not at all self-centered, but it's extremely self-interested. And it's... 
one of the you know greatest values any human being has. Perfect place to end. Please give a huge round of applause for my guest. Fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.